This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday. It's today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. We are all coming off. What was a pretty good weekend for weather until it poured last night? Let's talk about some news. Carly Russell and Lachelle Jordan are two women who disappeared mysteriously and then reappeared. Russell in Alabama and Jordan in Cleveland. Layla, where did the similarities in these two cases abruptly end? Well, EMS worker Lachelle Jordan went missing for five days in May, and police worked really hard to find her. They were asking the public for their help. And for a minute, they charged a, a man with stalking her, but they eventually dropped that charge for lack of evidence. And then a Jordan turned up eventually barefoot and, and disheveled at a convenience store. And police really haven't said much about it since then. Carlethia Russell, on the other hand, went missing in Alabama under some peculiar circumstances. After two days, she walked back into her home and said that she had been abducted by a man and a woman who it seemed had used a toddler walking alongside the highway as a trap to get her to pull over. And she had called 911 on the day of her disappearance to report this toddler. And then the call kind of abruptly ended. She later told police the man jumped out and ambushed her at that point. But unlike in Cleveland, um, Alabama police have been pretty upfront with the public about their investigation into this case. And they have suggested that parts of Russell's story are really suspicious and that they don't think there's any threat to the public. According to the police down there, in the days leading up to her disappearance, Russell did Google searches for things like, do you have to pay for an Amber Alert? And she did searches on missing persons cases. She also searched how to take money from a cash register without getting caught. And she looked up the movie Taken, which is about an abduction. There were also strange things about the day she went missing, like she left work with toilet paper and a bathrobe. So it sounds like police in Alabama are doubting her story and they're they're making the public aware of that while trying to reassure them that there's likely not a kidnapper out there using a toddler to lure his victims. So that's the difference. The, here in Cleveland, we have heard crickets about what happened in the aftermath of of this abduction. Yeah, the Cleveland case, case remains under investigation. This is a little bit troubling because both of these women have reported themselves as victims of crimes. And we don't know whether what the truth is. We we need the investigations to play out. And I kind of salute what Cleveland's doing because say say the whole story was made up. Say it turns out that it it's fiction. Okay. Ultimately, if you prove that, you can you can do some things, charge crimes. But but if it's not, you don't want other potential victims to think, well, if I report what happened to me, the police are immediately going to tell everybody they don't believe me. There's a real danger to this. The I police, the, the prosecutor's office, all these people are supposed to represent the victim. So I actually think what's happening in Cleveland is much more proper than what's happening in Alabama. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, I, that's exactly the feeling I had reading this story that, you know, on one hand, you know, Lachelle Jordan is the sister of Cleveland prosecutor, Aquila Jordan. So 
there's that element of like, okay, is the city trying to protect their family from some truth coming out about this? But on the other hand, if she's a victim, it would be so re-traumatizing for any of the details about her disappearance to be in the public before it's fully investigated and there's some um, some accountability and justice for her. Right. Right. The truth will out. Ultimately, the truth will come out. And if it turns out it's false, then that's when you can do it. I just I would hate for other victims to immediately worry. No one will believe me and I'll be hung out to dry and they'll question everything I was doing on the Internet. I mean, yes, Alabama seems somewhat fishy. But what if it's not? What if despite all of the things she did, she really was kidnapped and and abused in some way. So, um, kind of salute what Cleveland's doing. We'll have to wait and see what ultimately comes out of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio State Senator Jerry Serino has proposed an omnibus higher education bill that many in academia say will destroy Ohio's colleges and universities, driving away talented professors and dissuading smart students from attending. We know now where he got all his ideas from, Lisa, where did he get them? Yeah, Senate Bill 83, which was introduced back in March by Senator Jerry Serino, the Republican from Lake County. It passed the Senate in May, and it's currently in the House Committee. It was in our two-year budget bill, but it was removed. And the, the bill started at 39 pages. But after looking around, you know, it's now ballooned to 93 pages. And Senate Bill 83 borrows language from model legislation that was produced by three conservative think tanks, the one that they seem to have cribbed from the most is Civics Alliance, which was established in 2021 by the New York-based National Association of Scholars to push back against political correctness, climate change, 1619 Project, and affirmative action. And they actually sent a letter to Serino praising Senate Bill 83. They say we're delighted and proud that their language was used in this bill. And among the things that you know, Serino used from the Civics Alliance was in the mission statement where colleges and universities have to add five new statements to their existing statement that they shall not favor or disfavor or ban speech or lawful assembly and develop intellectual skills to reach their own informed conclusions. They also took uh, violations reporting, which was modeled after the Civics Alliance's Campus Freedom Act, which, um, you know, requires them to publish annual online reports listing violations of intellectual diversity. Also, the American government and history class requirements, uh, that's three credit hour course required for a degree if this law passes. Um, This was um, taken again from the Civics Alliance, as well as the affirmative action, which is kind of moot now because of the Supreme Court uh, decision, but uh, they did take language from the Civics Alliance about affirmative action. Another group was the um, Manhattan Institute, which promotes opportunity, individual liberty, and the rule of law. And it seems that Serino's bill took language from their model legislation about uh, uh, banning mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and training. Now, the Serino bill tried to ban that completely, but they realized that training for DEI is required for federal research grants. So they just, you know, saying that it's mandated. So um, the third group was the Goldwater Institute, which is a Phoenix-based group named for 
1964 GOP presidential nominee Barry Goldwater, a known conservative, and they took from that model legislation, Senate Bill 83 took the words on intellectual freedom. Um, That was modeled on the Goldwater Institute's Campus Free Speech Act. And they did take a little... uh, uh, a bit from Florida about the China ban. None of these institutes really had anything about a China ban. They want to ban Confucian institutes that are funded by Chinese government to teach its language and culture at American universities. Um, This is similar to legislation that was passed in Florida and signed by Governor Ron DeSantis on June 7th. Yeah, because learning Chinese so that we can communicate with the other gigantic world power would be a bad thing. The, the What's hilarious about Serino is every time he talks about this, he talks about the leftists taking over the campus. It used to be liberals, but I guess leftists conjures this idea of communists in the jungles of Cuba or something. It's this big, ominous, leftists are destroying our campus and making it impossible for us to have freedom of thought, when it's the opposite. He's trying to clamp down on any kind of open discussion uh, and and make this big part of the culture wars. I was impressed that the House refused to put this into the budget bill, and I'm hoping that the House doesn't like what he's doing here. And mm-hmm. if issue one goes down as big as it could, maybe they'll all be a little bit chastened and say, let's stop doing this nonsense. Lisa and I were talking before the podcast that the fringe right conservatives are attacking the Barbie movie because it's all woke and, and leftist. And it's just ridiculous how hard people like Serino are trying to rouse their base with nonsense like this bill. Well, and on its face, some portions of Senate Bill 83 sound reasonable. But then when Serino chimes in, and this is a direct quote, he says, a leftist ideology has a monopoly on most campuses <laughs> that's squashing intellectual diversity and punishing wrong thinking anti-woke dogma. I mean, how many buzzwords can you fit in there? <laughs> All of them, I guess. Yeah, it's all of them. And he wants so desperately to be on the Sunday morning talk shows. You know, it's like, I want want my microphone. I want my microphone. And he's made himself this cartoon character pushing this bill. Laura Hancock did just a terrific job showing that none of these are his ideas. He didn't have a single original idea. He went out to every wacko bill he could find, pulled it all together. And then he's quoted in the story saying, I wrote this bill. This is my bill. And then she shows that the language is directly from the model legislation from people who are trying to change America. Good stuff. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've talked many times about how Ohio's Republican lawmakers from gerrymandered districts are working to maintain their out-of-proportion control of the state. Issue one is one of those. But now a state senator is proposing another. Laura, who is it and what is she trying to do? Teresa Gavarone wants to outlaw ranked voting. And we just talked about this last week as part of our civil discourse series about how ranked voting is a way to avoid polar partisan primary elections and allow voters to choose more moderate candidates and basically make people make the the candidates for these seats, whatever you're running for, actually have more central ideas, centrist ideas. And if you remember, Teresa Gavarone was the one behind the driver's license voter ID bill, which had a lot of public support. She says ranked choice voting flies in the face of what the founders of the country and those in Ohio had in mind when they established the one vote, one choice model centuries ago. Doesn't that one vote, one choice remind you of the issue one, one person, one vote? That's the slogan. That's the (laughs) slogan of the anti-issue one. This bozo legislator has used the anti-issue one slogan 
Hogan to champion her opposite working bill. It was hilarious. I bet she didn't even realize what she was doing. Yeah, it makes. I was just like, really? Okay, this doesn't <laughs> compute here. But the idea that you're going to tell a city that they can or they can't have a choice of voting the way that they want to do in a perfectly respectable way that Alaska and Maine are doing, and plenty of cities are doing this because it promotes you know, less divisive politics. It's just like saying we don't want people to have any kind of say in the matter. It's just a power grab. We're in charge. We have disproportionate power. Anything that might change that we want to get rid of. And if issue one goes down, people have to go for this in the constitution, change the constitution to allow different voting systems. And they're also trying to hard harden the partisan primary instead of abolish them. Right. Because the party primaries leave most Ohioans, the independents like me with no voice and who the candidates are in November. So we're and left with what the fringe picks. This all goes back to gerrymandering because that is why we have a super majority in the legislature. That is why we have these very safe districts. People who are in power right now because of gerrymandering do not want anything to change. That's why issue one's on the ballot. That's why they don't want anybody to think about ranked choice. I wonder where this bill came from. If I mean, if University Heights, which Sabrina Eaton wrote about, was the only city in Ohio that's even considering this and the only reason that people know about it are because we wrote about it it's just like they're like i feel like it's like whack-a-mole like something pops up like people might be thinking about taking back their government and they're like no we will kill this idea well and the republicans used to be in favor of local control yes less onerous government i hope she's on video somewhere saying one person one vote the anti-issue one people could use that in their advertising campaign Teresa Gabarone, Republican in the state legislature, says one person, one vote. Uh, What a bonehead move. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Back in 1968, Allen Ginsberg and William Buckley, two guys who were polar opposites on the political spectrum, were able to engage in respectful dialogue. Layla, are there lessons there that might help us get beyond the polarization today? Stuff we've been talking about already on this podcast. Yes, there are lessons. Lucas has been studying the communication strategies that are offered up by Braver Angels Ohio, which is an organization committed to fostering more civil dialogue in our really polarized society. And he came across this very fascinating example of a bygone era when we were once indeed more civil and respectful with one another, even when we disagree. And the example was of this televised conversation in 1968 between William Buckley, one of the most conservative media personalities of his time, and and Allen Ginsberg, this wildly liberal, influential hippie poet. And despite how incredibly divisive the 60s were, these two managed to engage in a very respectful conversation which touched on psychedelics and the war on drugs and censorship and religion and the Vietnam War and and all these other topics. And notably, they grounded their discussion by finding things they could agree upon, which is one of the key tips for effective communication that groups like Braver Angels push. Ginsburg at one point read a poem that he had written while he was high on LSD and Ginsburg was was known to publish poems with profanity and sexually explicit passages, but he didn't troll Buckley or try to make him uncomfortable with this shocking explicit passage. Instead, he he chose a piece that was palatable for Buckley, and Buckley said he enjoyed it, and he complimented him on it. So there they found their common ground. And 
Both men stayed true to their beliefs, but they were very respectful of the other's opinion and were even able to find common ground on, on the topic of limiting government power or the writing of Henry Miller and the, you know things related to Christianity. So Lucas analyzed this, this particular moment in history in response to results from a survey that we partnered on with Baldwin Wallace and Braver Angels. And those results showed that 74% of people who were polled said civility in American politics has decreased in the last 10 years. 68% of them said civility in politics was either very or extremely important. And 78% of them said that civility had declined. They went further to say they believe the decline in civility is a crisis. So those opinions carried across all the demographics of, of this randomly sampled, you know, 600 adults from Northern Ohio. So, um, so we've, we decided to take a look at it through this particular prism. The thing about Buckley was he had a, a strong intellect, so he didn't need to resort to to condescension and meanness. He he was known for his respect in any conversation he had. He was he always respectful, but he because he was so confident in his mastery of his material, he could have a discussion with anybody. That's not what we have today. We have people right. screaming at each other all the time. And I suspect it's because some of them really don't have a mastery. I mean, when Ted Cruz is going off the deep end to complain about Barbie, you know, we've got a problem. You can imagine William F. Buckley doing a big polemic about the Barbie movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, you know, Lucas keyed in on certain moments of their conversation where just one turn of phrase seemed to be enough to bring it back to civility. Buckley would frequently say things like, well, in my opinion, and then would deliver his opinion instead of just telling Ginsburg, you're wrong, which you often see among pundits who argue on TV today. And so that, that you know, there's just one tip for communication that is so effective. And that's what we're trying to focus on. Although Lucas quoted a couple of people saying that there's there's more money to be made by being ridiculous that that the, in social media and certain news media the audience follows the anger and the shouting so that's why they go in that direction which is disturbing that's true and and it's also you know it, it, we we have technology today that can track our audience and know what they tune into and i think that in certain realms of media, that's that can be, you know, very damaging to our effort to be more civil to one another. This is one of the best stories so far in that series. Lucas did a great job on Larry. it. You can read it on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We should know for sure Tuesday, but what do we know so far about the legitimacy of signatures on petitions to put legalized abortion and marijuana on the November ballot in Ohio, Lisa? It's actually looking good for both initiatives. They met the Thursday deadline uh, for all Ohio counties to submit valid signatures to the Secretary of State's office. And as you said, uh, LaRose has until tomorrow to tell them if they've met the signature requirements. If not, they have a 10-day cure period to make up for that shortfall 
which I must point out would be illegal if state issue one passes. But in Northeast Ohio, Cuyahoga, Summit, Lake, Geauga, Medina, and Lorraine counties, they say that both campaigns have collected enough signatures in those counties. Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, they needed over 413,000 signatures. They collected 710,000. They would need 59% of those to qualify for the ballot. And the plain dealer in the cleveland.com validated 158,308 signatures in their little survey, and that's 68%. The Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, they needed just over 124,000 signatures. They collected 222,233. 56% of those would need to be valid to qualify. And the Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer validated 30,627 signatures in the six counties. So 52% would needed to be valid were valid, although they were under fifty two percent in Cuyahoga and Summit counties. So it looks like, depending on what LaRose finds, uh, they're both headed for the November ballot. So a lot of the stoners just aren't registered voters. They forgot. They <laughs> the the idea of the abortion getting on the November ballot will lead to a ton of advertising. The antis will spend ferociously putting messages out there about how this endangers children and all that kind of thing. Um, on the marijuana, is there an opposition that would spend money or would that pretty much sail through, do you think? I don't know. That would be an interesting thing. We've we've I've seen no advertising on this ballot initiative at all, pro or con. So it'll be interesting if it does, you know, make the ballot, where will the opposition come from and what will they say? Yeah, I just don't see a well-funded anybody coming mm-hmm. out against it, and the pro people would probably spend some money to to make the argument for it. Clearly, the battle would be about abortion, but every poll shows that that, that Ohio wants to, to have legalized abortion, so I'm not sure all that advertising would make much of a difference. Just fill the airwaves with hate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does BioEnterprise still owe $116,000 for double billing the former Medical Mart for managing it or not? Laura, why is this answer not clear? Well, the state auditor says yes. The board overseeing the Medical Mart, the Global Center for Health Innovation that is now going to be part of the convention center, says no. So this task force recently determined that BioEnterprise and that had that was the organization that had been hired to promote the Global Center when it was a Global Center still owed Kaiga County taxpayers, $116,000 in unauthorized charges. But they repaid the the Convention Facilities Development Corporation $127,000 as part of the 2021 lawsuit that got settled over double billing and other controversial charges. They also agreed to forfeit more than $515,000 in unpaid services, including a portion that that board already agreed the bioenterprise was lawfully owed. So they said they actually got more than the total that bioenterprise owed and that they're not going to seek additional recovery. But the auditor's office, while it appeared to acknowledge the possibility in its report, they still get to decide whether they go after BioEnterprise for more. Yeah, I don't get how they can be so far off on this. It doesn't make sense. I mean, numbers are numbers. The books are the books. Did they pay back what they owe or didn't they? Well, it feels like they didn't put everything in a line item or something if they're saying, well, 
you know, they, they forfeited these services that they'd already provided. I don't know. I mean, BioEnterprise's job was to oversee marketing, promotion, and tenant occupancy at the Global Center, which, as we know, was a failure. So it's not like they were successful in their job. That the com- I guess the company, it folded earlier this year. So it turned all of its assets over to Case, Western University, the Cleveland Clinic, and University Hospital. So we don't even know who they would attempt to get money from. It's also really interesting that board president Matt Carroll, who has been with the, you know, in county government and, and, um, and local government for a long time, they find him jointly and severally liable for repaying the money because he signed off on questionable payments to BioEnterprise. And that includes like a $300 liquor store bill to celebrate March Madness Happy Hour. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the big ideas in the air in Cleveland is a lakefront development authority to make sure we use our most important natural asset correctly. Is the Cuyahoga County Council about to bring its growing dysfunction into that sphere? Layla. Of course. Yeah, that's, that's what they do. <laughs> this, this was contemplated uh, in partnership with the county. This development authority is designed to create initial plans for the lakefront project, which includes plans to extend the downtown mall over lakefront rail lines and the shoreway to create a better connection to waterfront attractions like the Rock Hall and the Brown Stadium. The new nonprofit would precede the creation of a second organization, which would be called a new community authority, and that would have the power to issue bonds and collect taxes and fees and private contributions and um, would be able to fund major lakefront projects. So the two organizations would work in sync to oversee a shared executive director and staff. Well, the county's contribution would be $750,000 over three years to the startup of this development authority, and it would give them two voting seats on the 13-member board. The city is putting in $3 million over three years, and they, they would get seven seats on the board. The other seats would go to representatives of other organizations with a major lakefront presence, and, and presumably that would be the Browns and the Rock Hall, and one seat would be filled by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. But at a county council meeting last week, Council said they were tabling this proposal and they'd take it up at a future meeting. County Council says that the county should have more power on this board because they've invested so heavily in projects with an impact on the lakefront, like the convention center. And one council member, Scott Tuma, said he wondered if this was a backdoor way to get improvements funded for the Brown Stadium, which the city of Cleveland owns. And Councilman Dale Miller said he didn't like the idea of creating a new non-elected board with substantial governmental-like authority that's not as accountable or accessible to the public. So it's unclear how this is going to work out, but I'm going to bet that this will go forward with or without the county's participation and it's just a question of whether the county will have two votes on the board or zero. You know, most of this is about Cleveland. So, and the county doesn't have any money. So why doesn't it save, what is this, almost a million dollars? Save it, put it toward the jail, and skip this. The, 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 this isn't in any other place but Cleveland that we're talking about spending this money. Why does the county need to be involved at all? It's so childish. We want more seats. We want more voice. This is a Cleveland thing. Cleveland is trying to develop the waterfront because the county has talked about being a partner in that. I think they brought them in, but I don't think they need them. And really, the, the county has no money and they keep spending it like they do. Yeah, but the county obviously wants the power of having some say on on how these lakefront developments uh, shake out. And so how much power does $750,000 buy you? 
I think two well, seats is fair. Two seats, right. So right. That, that's what you get. You pay $750,000, you get two seats, and they're saying they want more. It's like, you know, right. this is a Cleveland thing. It, it just seems like more childishness from the county. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's hard to believe we were talking about a drought in Cleveland just a couple of months ago, given how hard it has rained of late. We got another storm yesterday, but last Thursday is the one we're talking about. That storm rolled through significantly on the west side. Lisa, what are the numbers from that storm and why are they significant? Yeah, 1.91 inches of rain fell during that Thursday storm. That was the heaviest single-day rainfall since September 22nd of 2021, when that was 1.93 inches. But this was tied at number 74 of the 76 times since 1938, when at least 1.9 inches fell in a single day. And these records are from our official recording station at Hopkins Airport. The all-time record... 4.59 inches in a single day. That was September 7th of 1996. And the second one was 3.98 inches in September 7th of 2020. Obviously, same day, weird. Um, Heavy rains are more common recently, though. Of the 76 times we've had single-day rainfalls that heavy since 1938, 17 in the last 10 years, 30 since 2000. Yeah, our Yadi, Yadira Rodriguez of the Ask Yadi, the column we're running, was out at the airport and sent some photos, and they were flooded. They were completely flooded out there. Uh, it's odd for for the recording station to be in the center of the storm, but that was that was a big one. The rain is coming and coming. I can't believe that they're still talking about parts of the state being in a drought. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our columnist Bob Paulson wrote a piece early this year comparing the Guardians quite unfavorably to the Cavs and Browns in how they treat their fans. And here we are in late July with the Guardians selling out some games. How did the team rekindle that magic with the fans, Laura? I personally think it's by offering deals, really. Like, like give a deal to Clevelanders, offer some free food, and you've got us, right? Both Friday and Saturday were sold out. And the team says there's a bunch of reasons. There was a Stephen Quad bobblehead giveaway. Like I said, free stuff. We like that. A young team with likable players snapping at the heels of the first place in the American League Central Division. Everybody likes a winner. Fans get to experience interleague play, so they're playing everybody in Major League Baseball. And new rules have created this more efficiently paced game. And the Saturday game was, the, I believe, the fourth sellout. And that was, it's a far cry from the 90s, right, when Cleveland sold out 455 consecutive games when they first moved to what was then Jacobs Field. But it is something. It's based on momentum. And as someone who uh, went to the game on July 4th, I mean, part of it was these are $20 seats. I mean, they weren't bad. They were in the kids zone. And we got, I think, $8 of loaded value onto it for food. And so we went with three other families. And it was a fun night out. And, you know, if you're in the kids zone, then the kids can go – do that stuff and go to the bathroom by themselves. You don't have to worry about it. Um, so I think they're thinking more of like how to appeal to families. Well, and I, if you read back what Bob Paulson wrote, they're kind of doing some of the stuff he suggested. I'm not saying they got their ideas from him, but they hadn't been doing that stuff for a lot of years. The, the monthly discount, the monthly mm-hmm. pass has proven to be very, very popular. Uh, and it's putting people in the seats. And when you get down there and the place is filled with cheering fans, it's better than when you look around and the place is mostly empty. Yeah, exactly. And so they're doing all sorts of promotions. Like there were $8 tickets available, tiled to Nailers, eighth run uh, inning heroics. They um, and, and 
and there's food giveaways and promotions, high demand nights, Fridays and Saturdays. They do those fireworks stuff, free t-shirts, dollar hot dogs are always popular with Clevelanders. So I, I think, and, and the fact that they're good and they were pretty good last year. So people have caught on does not hurt. Okay. Check out Mark Bonus story. He lays it all out. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks, everybody who listens. Come back tomorrow. We'll talk about some more news.